Architecture's for everybody. It's not just for the 1%. And we do more than like draw pretty pictures of pretty buildings. We physically can build communities. So we need to be a part of the community and we need to understand the community in order to help build that community. I'm joined by Leslie Sidnor, president of the Los Angeles chapter of the American Institute of Architects and director of public project management at Cumming, an architecture firm here in Los Angeles. Leslie has the kind of intersectional vision that very, very few people in her field have and means that to us at Living Untitled, she has the kind of mind we want to learn more from about how she thinks about community and how we can create spaces that actually work as a supportive backdrop to resilient, inviting, sustainable, and inclusive communities. Welcome to Living Untitled. I don't know if you know the statistics, but they're like, I think we're like up to 550 Black women licensed as architects in the country. Wow. Out of 110,000. 110,000. Yeah. If that's where we are today, where were we not too long ago? Like, Well, so I licensed in, I think it's been 12 years. I'm number 243. Obviously, and, and rightly so, diversity and inclusion is so important to you. Absolutely. Why do you feel it's so important to continue to sort of advocate this in the work that you do? So statistically, if we look at, you know, the progression of the population of the country, right? Mm. It is becoming more brown. And so if you are designing, I'm not saying that you have to be of a culture to design for that culture, but there should be, somebody should be informing that design because what is valuable to one group of people is not valuable to another group of people. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's that aspect. Mm. I think the other aspect of it is a trust level and an understanding. And so what has happened for so very long, for so very often, is the big guy mm -hmm. comes in and says, well, two things. One, you need this, mm. and I'm going to give this to you. Like I, I, I walked around, I looked, you need this. Let me give you this. Mm. Maybe I don't want that. Did yeah. you ask me? Yeah. And if you come in as a an outsider, whatever that outsider is, and we could get into that, whatever that yeah. outsider is, like you're not informed. You don't really know what I want. I was listening to a podcast. It's Sean Joyner, and he was interviewing Jermaine Barnes, who's down yeah. at the University of Florida. And he said, you know, you come in and you tell me what I want, and sometimes all I want is a Starbucks. But if you didn't ask, mm -hmm. then you don't know. Yeah, And it takes time to get that agency because it doesn't like if I want to go down to, you know, South L.A. and design, Yeah, it seems like it should be easy, but I'm not from there. Yeah, And even though I look like them, yeah. I'll open my mouth and they're like, yeah, you're not from here. Mm. Conversely, I have a friend who is Irish-American guy, tall and, you know, sandy blonde hair and, yeah. you know, looks like a looks like a actor. Yeah. Um, he's been doing work in Watts for 10 years. They trust him. It's because he's down there doing the work when it wasn't hot and it wasn't sexy. People have grown to know him and grown to trust him. Mm -hmm. And so he could work in that, in that an arena. We were talking about a project recently and he said, would you come with me? Because mm -hmm. we're getting into this, this spot where I need some, I need you. To take me to that next level. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I really think you just have to acknowledge 
all the people in the room. Mm. And for so long, we haven't acknowledged all the people in the room. Mm. So I think that that is why it's really important. And diversity of idea and thought, it doesn't matter. Different people like, oh, you're from New York, you're from Mississippi. There's a diversity of thought right there, right? Just based on where people come from. I went to, you know, Ivy League. Oh, I went to a small state school. There's your, you know, there's a diversity of thought. So after May 2020, everybody jumped on the diversity bandwagon, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, there was this acknowledgement. So thank you for that. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But we're already starting to see it wane. You know, people like, why am I bothering? Well, there's the business case for Mm. it. Companies that act with diversity make more money. So that's a bottom line thing. You can make the argument across the spectrum from it's morally right, it's it's socially right. Yeah, it makes me more money. You you bring up such an amazing point about trust as this sort of relationship between trust and diversity. And again, to me, like I see that as a business consideration because again, like we just talked about, trust is so great for community. Trust is so great for you know businesses to succeed. Trust is so great in a managerial operational way. But it's this human thing at its core. Trust is this wonderful sort of intangible thing in the room that has this amazing oversized impact. You get farther if somebody trusts you. Mm. You can do better work if somebody trusts you. If mm. you're spending if you have to spend an inordinate amount of time mm. gaining somebody's trust, then you're then you don't have time to do the work. Mm. Unless, of course, again, like I said, if you just go into a situation and you know you have time, Mm. then, okay, you have Mm -hmm. that time to invest. But so many people are, like, in a hurry. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes there's a a shortcut to trust. Mm -hmm. And those people who can take that shortcut, I would hope, don't violate that trust. Because once the trust is broken, it's so hard to get it back. Mm. Obviously, underserved communities, be that communities of color or poor communities, Mm -hmm. they have their trust broken all the time. I'm going to bring you this. It doesn't come. I'm going to do that for you. It doesn't come. And so what happens is either they organize to to stand in the way Mm. of whatever projects are trying to be accomplished Or there's the bad develop. I'm going to call it the bad development money because it's the people who just like they see a bargain and they're like, oh, I'm going to go buy that. And I'm going to, you know, the, the, the dreaded G word. So sure. th- that happens. But I think people are figuring out in some cases that, OK, well, that money is coming, but I'm going to make you do things for me. Mm. I have several friends right now, kind of the, the next generation behind me mm-hmm. that are all about like getting into the communities and helping the more established firms mm. talk to the community to yeah. really affect positive change yeah. and to really listen to people. Um, it's interesting because AIA Los Angeles, mm-hmm. we, for the longest time, our offices were Wilshire and Western mm-hmm. up, up high looking over the city. And our it was kind of a convergence of things. Our lease was up and then, you know, pandemic struck, right? Mm-hmm. So at that time, we said, oh, well, we want a new home. Where that home was kind of moved around. Mm-hmm. But the thought was always to be on the ground floor yeah, so that people could walk in off the street and talk to us and see what it is that we do. We wound up leasing a space in the West Adams District, 
mm. in an old bank building that had been abandoned for years. Wow. And we really did the work to reach out to the community because we didn't want to be seen as interlopers. Like, mm -hmm. who are these architects? What is this organization? What are you doing here? Why are you here? You're just another symbol of the gentrification that's happening. And we have a nonprofit wing that is about education, like K-12 and reaching out, and college as well. One of the things that they've been doing is throwing block parties and going to neighborhood uh, farmers markets mm. with the message of like, you too can be an architect or do you want to know what architecture is? Mm. You can you, maybe you need the services of an architect. This, yeah. Is this what you want to do? Yeah. And so we're really trying to like you know be the good neighbor, be a community member, yeah. reach out, expand what it means to you know architecture for everybody. It's not just for you know the one percent. Yes. Everybody everybody needs an architect, and we do more than like draw pretty pictures of pretty buildings. Yes. We physically can build communities. Yeah. So we need to be a part of the community and we need to understand the community in order to help build that community. Yes. Like what is that message when you say that architecture for everybody like and that impact that it has on a community and like what does that mean for you personally? That is a very good question. Some people go to architecture school, you know, to be a designer with the big D. <laughs> um, we still have all the magazines you know, that are architecture porn, all mm -hmm. the beautiful buildings, right? I love those. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, they're beautiful to look I, at. I read them. <laughs> I check them out online. You know, if I'm in a city or whatever, I will go check out that building. Um, you know, this year, the the architecture, um, we don't call it a convention anymore, but the convention's in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I haven't been to San Francisco in a while, so I'm excited to go see all that <laughs> stuff. So that is true. I mean, interestingly enough, I so I decided to want to be an architect in like middle school. Mm. And that was about the same time that we had kind of our first homeless explosion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'd ride the subway back and forth to high school and there were homeless, you know, sleeping on the subway, sleeping in the train stations. And I knew that, well, my mom worked for the city of New York and I knew that New York owned a lot of real estate that mm. was not being used. Mm -hmm. And so in my head, I was like, we just need to turn all that stuff into like homeless housing and affordable housing. And why aren't we doing that? Well, in the time that it took for me to go away to school and come back, the city was like, we need to do that. <laughs> and so my first job was, I always tell people my first job was my dream job. I was mm -hmm. doing renovations. So I wasn't doing, um, I wasn't doing new construction. Mm -hmm. I was doing remodels. And we were taking these buildings that had been abandoned for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, when we were done, low-income families had a, a good place to live. I mm -hmm. mean, we had these standards. So it wasn't mm -hmm. like cookie cutter, small boxes made had a cardboard. Yeah. I mean, it was hardwood floors, mm. you know, copper pipes to make sure that the, the water ran and the and the heat was working. Yeah. Um, all of the and and standards for how big a bedroom could be. So we weren't giving people like, you know, 60 square foot bedrooms or anything mm -hmm. like decent sized bedrooms and a nice kitchen. Mm. And so these people went from shelters to a really great place to live. That 
to me, was what architecture was supposed to be about. Everybody deserves a decent Mm -hmm. place to live. And then understand, I mean, I had an early lesson. I remember my, my boss at the time, she said, don't remember what we were talking about. And she said, you can't give those people anything. And my hackles went up. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, like the worst thing to say, like those people, those people. We know what those people mean. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. I was totally just beside myself. And she didn't mean it maliciously. She just didn't say it right. Mm. And what she meant was, which I came to understand is, if somebody hasn't had a place to live that's nice, that's clean, Mm. that's safe, that's their own Mm. for a very long time, there's kind of a skill set that isn't there. And so you kind of have to be aware Mm. of their needs. And so for the longest time, I mean, I I feel like all the stuff that I did in New York in in the, was that the late 80s, we just gave people a place to live. We didn't support them when the light bulb goes out, which we don't do anymore because we have LEDs. But when the light bulb (laughs) goes out, you know, if you haven't lived in a place for a very long time, like, what do you do? You're not, it's intuitive to me and you, like, oh, you go to a store and go buy a new light bulb. But that is not intuitive to everybody. So, so you need to support people. Mm. So, my mother grew up in. Harlem in the, what would that be, 30s, 40s, 50s. My doctor was a black man who owned a brownstone mm. in in Harlem, right? Yeah. Which is probably worth like $3 million now. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but was not at the time. His office his office was on the, on the ground floor, the kind of basement level. Yeah. And then, you know, he lived above with his mom above, yeah. right? So I'm the product of like, you know, the civil rights era, right? But, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. post Martin Luther King and Mm -hmm. Malcolm X, right? And the whole civil rights movement. She grew up before that. Mm -hmm. And what she said to me at once was like, desegregation was not the best thing that happened to us. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I didn't understand that. Mm -hmm. But what she meant was there used to be this community And within the community, when we weren't really allowed to live wherever we wanted to, the garbage man lived next to the doctor, lived next to the teacher, lived Mm. next to the postman. You saw everybody. Those possibilities were just apparent. You could, if you know, maybe you weren't good in school or whatever, you were going to go up to be, you know, going to work for for the sanitation department. Maybe you were that, you know, genius kid and they were going to, somehow they were going to send you off to med school, right? But you saw all of these possibilities and everybody was living together in community. When we were allowed to live wherever we wanted, a lot of the... There was a drain on the community, mm. and you were left with people who didn't know how to teach each other how mm. to lift each other up. Mm. Um, there's, of course, been a decision. I think it's growing and growing that people are going back to their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so you're building that community again. But I think that there's a whole generation where that was lost. Mm. Um, and without community, I feel like people fail, neighborhoods fail. Mm whole generations fail and there's like the exception this always oh well you're the exception no Mm. not necessarily but because of what we've 
but because communities were decimated for such a long time, what the media likes to portray is the worst of the community and not the best of the community. You know, so much of our work on Title Future, so much of this podcast, my passion is the idea of community. And mm -hmm. that question I ask myself is, how do we build and sustain thriving communities made for everyone? Right. I guess there's so much historical context, and I could find a lot of this and find examples of what you were just talking about. But you're right. Like, that's a, that's a lived experience for people that once— had that, mm -hmm. understood what that was, to have those models right there on their block, in their community every single day in front of them. And now we have those models on TV, on YouTube, sure, but like... Not the same. It's not the same thing, exactly. Like it really doesn't resonate in the same way. And so you forget that it's like there's something about having that that sense of community, that design, that sort of relationship, it's not just the architecture, it's not just the technical sort of design of community, but it's that social infrastructure mm -hmm, piece mm -hmm. as well. Like mm -hmm. Eric Klinenberg, he talks a lot about this, mm -hmm. like social infrastructure and right. how that's missing in the world today, how we no longer have the, the library that serves a community. It's not just a place where you check out a book. It's a place where there's this community gathering. It's this place where all are welcome. It's a multi-generational meeting place, gathering place, where, again, you're in, a, in an environment where you can see all of these different sort of possibilities for you, in a no, way. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, I grew up, you know, in that time of playing on the, playing in the street till the streetlights came on, right? Mm. And um, there were the, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call them the village elders mm. who made sure you weren't getting into things. And if you were doing something you weren't supposed to do, by the time you got home, my, I was a really good kid, so this was not an issue. <laughs> but the whole, you know, Miss So-and-so saw you, you know, where you weren't supposed to be. <laughs> like, I just got here. How did you know that's what I was up to? Like, there's that. Yes. I mean, there's that part of community that's yeah. gone. That was like... Going to the park. I I mean, I I raised my kid here. Yeah. I, he never went to the park. Yeah. We didn't go to the park. Yeah. Of course, L.A. has a huge deficit in parks, oh. but that's a whole another issue. Yes. Oh, we could talk about <laughs> go somewhere else. It's actually just an aside. Um, I was at one point, I worked for LAUSD for a little while, mm. and we were looking at redoing school grounds. Mm. Too much asphalt, right? Mm -hmm. So get rid mm -hmm. of the asphalt, bring in some green, et cetera. And I had one of the principals say, like, this is a really important pro um, project for us mm. because there are no n parks near this school, and this is their park. Mm -hmm. This is where they can get outside. I talked to her. I mean, we were still in the midst of the pandemic, kind of starting to come out of it. Mm -hmm. So it was about a year, a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, all the kids here who go to this school are in apartment buildings, probably without balconies. Yes. So they were literally stuck inside. Meanwhile, kids in other neighborhoods, you could go to the park in social distance. You could safely walk around the block, get your exercise, mm -hmm. social distance, and be mm -hmm. safe. Where the school was, that was not true. And so the only safe place is the schoolyard. Been in education architecture for 20-odd years. Mm. And that's another part of it is schools as 
a linchpin in the community mm-hmm. and being able to contribute to community like community building schools. Yes. That institution serves so much more than just a place where I learn mm-hmm. what's in the books in front of me. It's a place where I learn so much else mm-hmm. through that experience Absolutely. of being in that environment. Absolutely. That community you talked about that, you know, you you sort of grew up in and your family, your parents grew up in years and years ago where there was that strong sort of definition of community that sort of those models that you needed to help raise and support and uplift the entire community. To me, that sounds like a lot of what you need to build a resilient community, a community that can rebuild Mm -hmm. in times of crisis or challenge or as a result of a, a just this sort of devastation. What does that look like today? What tools, what resources, what are we doing to support these communities? What do we need to do to support these communities in light of all this? What are you focused on? Um, that's, oh God, that's so interesting because I think of places like there was a town in North Kentucky that got wiped out by a tornado. Folks there realized that in part, I mean, tornadoes, as we know, just devastate the Midwest, mm-hmm. have always, right? Climate change or not. But there was this also this acknowledgement of like the effects of climate change because storms are getting bigger. And they recognized that and they rebuilt the town and they rebuilt the town green in addition to, of course, beefing up the the codes. But Mm. they realized that there were just some things that they could do to protect themselves Mm -hmm. from what had happened. There there was some rebuilding in New Orleans that happened Mm -hmm. in acknowledgement of the water. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can go to neighborhoods now and see buildings up much higher Mm. than they were. I mean, I think it's a huge challenge. There are so many people, like most of the people who are in danger from the effects of climate change are isolated or poor communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The rich communities kind of throw money at it. Oh, we'll just dump some more sand over there. Mm-hmm. Like, you can dump all the sand in the world you want. Mother Nature's still coming for you. You know, at some point, somebody has to make a decision, like, we're going to stop spending money on that. So there's yeah. that side. I mean, there are all of these discussions about literally relocating communities. I mean, sometimes the community moves together. They value what they have. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of communities in Alaska mm-hmm. that have had to relocate. The community moves together. They have to find a different way of living the life that they've lived, but they're together, they're figuring it out. If you look at what happened in New Orleans, people left and never came back. You know, the New Orleans that we knew is not there anymore. So the city itself, I would say, is resilient. But I don't know that the community that was there, is this, it's, it's been remade and it's something different, which is not necessarily bad, but it is different. A place like New Orleans is so romanticized and mm-hmm. valued that people are going to do whatever they can to kind of preserve that. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody wants to go to New Orleans. New Orleans is a fabulous place. Mm. It's super fun. Mm -hmm. Um, It's still fun. I love New Orleans. Right. So do I, right? (laughs) Um, And so a place like that is always, it's always going to survive. Yeah. Like I said, the community looks different, but that place is always going to survive. There are other places 
that don't necessarily survive. The South Shore of Jersey that got hit in Sandy. There are towns that just, they're like half empty and yeah. people haven't come back. Not resilient. I mean, I think part of it has to do with way of life yeah. and valuing what you have in this, this group of people. Mm. And if you don't have that, and this is just like the place that you live, mm. but not home in your heart, then you can just pick up and go and it won't survive. You mentioned some of these communities in Alaska that for whatever reason mm -hmm. needed to, as a community, move somewhere new and then build new mm -hmm. there, build mm -hmm. anew, whatever that looks like. But there's something, and I'm so curious from your perspective, especially as being an architect, where you know, you you are have a vested interest in place and mm -hmm. like the the physical landscape mm -hmm. of a place, what creates a sense of place. This these are communities that left that sense of place to build a whole oh, new beautiful. sense of place. Right. But they're able to still do it as a community mm -hmm. and as a result of that thrive right. in where they went to. So to me, the the place, the physical infrastructure was still important where they were and probably what they needed to build where they went to, but that didn't define community for them. Correct. In that instance. Correct. But I think it's a mindset, really. Mm. I can think of my, my group of friends. So a group of friends, we came from different places. We went to school together. Mm. For a while, we were flung here or there. Mm. We all wound up in L.A. together, mm. however long it's been since we've been here together, right? And as we look at, like, the next stages of our life, we're, we're I, I mean, I, I don't know that we can come to a consensus, but we have this thought of, like, a whole co-living situation, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. We're going to go, we're going to go get a piece of land and we're all going to, and I've already designed it. So there's <laughs> me, the architect. There's one of, one of the group is a landscape architect. So we are, we know what it looks like already. <laughs> we're, we're good. We're good. Right. I love it. Um, but that's, I mean, we are a created community. There's a, like a shared language. There's a mm -hmm. shared history. Mm -hmm. um, even though we come from very different places and we're doing very different things. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, that's my tribe. We talk, and the things that we talk about kind of inform this this fantasy community of ours that we want to build. And we have friends who are like, are, can we get in on that? Like, yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but, like, in the larger sense of things, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know how architecture informs that. Mm. I think... Architectural thinking mm. can inform that, but I don't mm. know that architecture informs that. I mean, Great we point. have we have you know the planned communities. Thinking like Seaside, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. and those examples, and the new urbanism. They look great. I don't know that they necessarily accomplished what they set out to do. Mm. Um, but the flip side is, is I mean, I grew up in 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 a New York of of retail on the ground floor and mm -hmm. and apartments above, and you didn't have to walk far to go to the grocery store, and you ran into people all the time because you weren't like getting in your car and driving over there mm -hmm. to go to the store. You were just walking downstairs and and crossing the street. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a sense, that is an architecture that informs community. 
That's because true. you're forced to kind of rub up against each other. Yeah. Um, when the riots happened and I went home and everybody's like, you know, tell us about it. And I mm. said, well, I don't think that it would ever happen in New York to the degree mm-hmm. that it happened in Los Angeles. It did happen. Actually, it happened in my neighborhood of Washington Heights. But mm. it wasn't to the degree that it happened in L.A. And I said, I think part of it has to do with, like, the common humanity of being on the street, being on the bus, and being on the subway together. If they're commuting, they see each other every day. Because I used to get the, like, 703 number one train downtown <laughs> every day, right? So you see, you see the same conductor every day, see the same <laughs> folks every day. And so there's just an understanding of, of humanity. You still might not like that person. You yeah. might you might be racist. I'm not saying that you're not, but you there is still an understanding like that's per you're a person, I'm a person. We're both in this this thing together. Mm. We both gotta go to work, we both gotta go to school. We both have like the same concerns. Mm. You know, I might not appreciate the way that you deal with those concerns. Yeah. Um, but I and I don't know anything about your life because all I do is I see you for 45 minutes on the train, right? Yeah. But yeah. I still, you know. There's there's a community there, yes. right? There's the community of, of strap hangers. Yes. Um, yes. So, I mean, community is made in different ways. I don't know that it's always, I don't know that it's architectural, and I don't necessarily know that architects can inform that. They, I think that architects can work against community. Mm. I don't know that you can actually physically build it. Yeah. As an architect close. I can I can make a community much more difficult, yes. right? I can create unsafe spaces. I can create places that people don't really want to live. I can, mm. you know, you can have urban planners who create these massive boulevards that are mm. very hard to cross. Mm. Um, we saw urban renewal my favorite, um, <laughs> that, you know, just cut swaths through vibrant cities and communities and neighborhoods with these 8, 9, 10, 16-lane freeways yes. that bifurcated neighborhoods. Yes. Um, I mean, I spent four, near, four years in New Haven with the end of the freeway mm. right there. Mm-hmm. And I've heard the stories of what that part of New Haven was like before this dang freeway, or back there was highway. Highway came through, yeah. and the neighborhoods never recovered. I mean, there's so much work being done of like tearing, tearing these things down. Yeah. Right. So there are all these things that worked, were built, the yeah. built environment that worked against community. I can maybe build something that would facilitate community, mm. but it's not gonna make it work. If if the people aren't there, mm-hmm. the trust isn't there, like, yes. do I really need that thing? What is that thing? Yeah, I'm not gonna use it. I don't need that. I don't like that. Well, I love it, and we came all the way full circle, and thank we, you, we're, we're at time <laughs> as well. And so I appreciate that we came all the way full circle to that point about the people. Leslie, I could just go on for hours and hours and hours and hours with you. Thank you so much for thank this. You. This was just such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. This was great. This episode was produced by the Untitled Future team. For more information about Untitled Future, please visit us at untitledfuture.com or follow us on LinkedIn. And for more episodes, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Boone. 
Thanks for listening. And remember, life's better when you belong.